You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. So, real talk, I've been a pastor for about five years, and I'm starting to develop a love-hate relationship with the Christian holidays, particularly Easter and Christmas. It's a little bit different on this side of things. Uh, There's a lot of pressure on pastors and on churches to go all out on Easter and Christmas to kind of create a big experience where everything is great and fun for everybody. Anyways, if you know me, you probably know that I don't love that. <laughs> I think that the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ can stand on its own. It's powerful enough to, to stand on its own without uh, fog and lights and sound machines and so forth. But one of the ways that I combat this pressure is I play a song in my head over and over again. It's a very powerful song. I sing it, I laugh to myself, and I play it over and over again. And the song is going to be up on the screen, but it's this song called uh, Everything is Awesome. (laughs) It's from the Lego movie. (laughs) And uh, the song pretty much goes, everything is awesome over and over and over and over again. (laughs) The singers are essentially drunk with the fact that everything is awesome. Uh, I really like the the bridge of the song that says, uh, Blue skies, bouncy springs, we just named two awesome things. A Nobel Prize, a piece of string, you know what's awesome, everything. (laughs) (laughs) Trees, frogs, clogs, they're awesome. Rocks, clocks, and socks, they're awesome. Figs and jigs and twigs, that's awesome. Everything you see or think or say is awesome. Everything is awesome. Now, I think I think I like the this song around this time of year because I kind of get a kick out of this mentality. I think a lot of people are living in this song for real. Uh, especially in the church world where awesome essentially means the experience has to be hype. And so I listen to it. Uh, I laugh to myself and I imagine how wild and turned up I'd have to get to to, to become like that, to try to put on a, a, a wild and a experiential, experiential uh, church service. Uh, but look, if we're being real this morning, we live in a world that is craving for everything to be awesome. Everything has to be an over-the-top experience. Parties, vacations, church experiences, dates, jobs, going shopping, everything has to be over the top. It all has to be awesome. Now, I'm not a cultural critic, but a lot of social commentators would actually say this exposes something a bit dark about our culture. It's a red flag that people aren't really happy. They're discontent. They're bored. Uh, They're never satisfied. So they're constantly running to the next thing, declaring everything is awesome when, in fact, not that many things are actually awesome. But this morning, on Resurrection Sunday, we're face-to-face 
with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. And we can be reminded that this morning, that in him we can find real joy. In him we can find real happiness. In him we can find real satisfaction. We can find real awesome. We can find all that we're looking for in him and all that his resurrection entails for our lives. And so that's really where I'm going this morning. Uh, That's also where the passage is going this morning. It's the main point of this passage and also the main point of this message, and that's this. Hope is in the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope is in the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the hope, the peace, the rest, the fulfillment we've always been looking for is found in God. And it's confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whose resurrection is a picture of our resurrection. Now, our text this morning is Psalm 16, which is a bit a bit peculiar for a Resurrection Sunday uh, Easter service. Uh, basically, after Jesus was raised from the dead and poured out his spirit, the apostle Peter and the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, he gets up and he preaches his first sermon. And he uses this particular psalm to describe and to make a case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so if it's good enough for Peter, it's good enough for me, and it should probably be good enough for us this morning. In this psalm, uh, we meet David, and David is crying out to God to preserve him, to protect him, to satisfy his heart. He looks out into the world, David, and he sees all the dangers, and David says that his refuge is God. He knew that God was his place of safety, of real peace, of real rest, of real forever hope, a place of refuge in a chaotic world, a place that can't be shaken. And today on Resurrection Sunday, this psalm helps us to see why we need a refuge that can't be shaken and how we get a refuge that can't be shaken, a refuge of hope. And so that's really the outline, and that's where we're going this morning. We'll be up on the screen, and it's this. Number one, why we need a refuge that cannot be shaken. And number two, how we get a refuge that cannot be shaken. Intensely practical and thinking about how the resurrection of Jesus impacts our lives. So let's look at this first point, why we need a refuge that can't be shaken. The psalm starts, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. In verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So David's looking out on the world and he sees the dangers of life, the discontentment of life, the uncertainty of everything in life. How everybody's just chasing after stuff. And he knows that he needs a place 
of refuge, a place where he cannot be shaken. Now, he's not looking for a safe space. He's not looking for a a cry corner. He's talking about permanence. He's talking about foundations. He's looking out on the world, and he sees that it's a lot of fluff. It's a lot of ebb and flow. It's a lot of come and go. And he wants permanence. He wants something that lasts. Now, this is a big theme in the Bible as you read the pages of the Bible constantly over and over and over again as we read the words of Scripture. We're reminded that this world is fading. Jesus says, build your life on him, the solid rock, not on the shifting sand. The point is, is that the world doesn't have foundations. It's not permanent. There's nothing in this world that won't be shaken. It's all going to pass away. It's all fleeting. Now this morning, to be a Debbie Downer, I have three in particular that really describe this reality. Let's consider just a few, and I would submit to you that this is simply just the truth. Number one, this world has no physical foundations. This world has no physical foundations. Hundreds of years ago, scientists used to say that matter, that is solid, liquids, and gases, for those of you who don't remember science class, scientists used to say that matter has always existed. They would have said it had a foundation. But today, if you were to talk to a scientist, what they would tell you is that matter itself is nothing but energy in motion. Basically, the particular configuration of energy and atoms and molecules that make up matter, that stuff we're made of, started with a big bang, and eventually it's going to wind down. And one day the theory goes, the sun's going to go out, and the universe will likely die. And when that happens, matter will eventually all go away, because it's just a temporary configuration of energy. And because of that, from one perspective, nothing we do, or what anybody does, is ever going to make a difference in the end because there's no foundations. There's no permanence. Number two, this world has no intellectual foundations. If you were to go back even 20 years ago and read the Washington Post or the National Review, today a lot of what's in there would be considered hateful and bigoted, wrong and ignorant. A lot of the textbooks in school that we used in 20 years will go completely out of date. Some of the philosophies and the ideas end up being wrong. You could argue politics. Just 20 years ago, one major party, one of their major platforms in the early 2000s is now part of the rival party's platform today. The point is is that no human philosophy lasts. It shifts around. There's things that our culture believes today in 50 years from now that everybody is going to look at and read and they're going to laugh at. It'll be embarrassing. The point is, is human philosophies don't last. They become stupid and then they go away and something new comes. So there's no foundations. There's no permanence. Number three, the world has no emotional foundations. Perhaps worst of all, in a very real sense, this world is going to take away everything that we love. 
everything and everyone that's ever meant anything or anything in our hearts to any of us is someday going to go away. We can't keep our families together forever, or our group of friends, or our spouse, or our kids. The world is going to scatter them. Some will move away. Friendships can fracture for good. And at the end of the day, everybody's going to die. One pastor tells a story about a young girl who was a model, and she was thinking about the future. And she said, I'm a size three, but I know by the time I'm in my 40s, I may be a size eight, a size 10. I know of people who get there and they're just devastated. I have to get ready for that emotionally. Now, <laughs> the, tr- the truth is that she's got a lot more to worry about than that. There is no foundations. There is no permanence from one perspective. So we can see why David is crying out to God. He looks around and he sees a world of temporary. He sees a world filled with dangers, a world filled with uncertainty, and he wants his life to last. He wants something permanent. And we cry out this morning just like David, don't we? We cry out that we want something that lasts. We want a refuge. We don't want to be shaken. We want a love that lasts. And there's nothing in the world that can do that except for God. The God who raises the dead, the God who raised his son from death to life to live forever and ever, which really leads us to point two of this morning, how we get a refuge that cannot be shaken. The psalm continues, verse two. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So David, he looks out into the world. He sees that it's uncertain. He sees that it's filled with dangers. It can be filled with shady people. And it's fading. It's not permanent. But he's known God for some time now. He has a God-trusting soul. He knows the grace of God. He knows the character of God. He knows the love of God. And he describes here how he has a refuge that can't be shaken. Notice there's, there's two things here, and they're pretty simple. And they show us on this Resurrection Sunday how we can have a refuge that can't be shaken. How we can have an unshakable hope in a world of transience, in a world of temporary in a world that fades. Number one, we turn to the living God. We turn to the living God. Notice that he's living in a land filled with people who worship other gods. Verse four, those who run after another God. To run after something means to pant after something, to hunger 
or to crave for it. In ancient times, people used to believe in a set of divine beings. There was a god of war, a god of wealth, a god of beauty, a god of success, a god of respect. There was a god for everything. And people worshipped these gods. They found their meaning in these gods. They longed for these gods. They panted after these gods. The image is like a thirsty dog running to a water dish. Now today, most people generally don't believe in a set of divine beings, a bunch of different divine beings over different areas of life, but functionally, we still fall into the same trap. It's very possible to take things like beauty or success or respect and to make these things gods, to give these things divine status in our lives, so much so that we end up saying, if I get this or that, I'll be happy, and if I don't get this or that, I'll be unhappy. But notice he points out the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. In other words, if we run after these things, if we build our lives on these things, we'll be shaken. It'll not end the way we thought it would end. And even if you're lucky, even if you end up in the very small minority where you actually get whatever you've been running after, sooner or later, it's going to slip away. It'll pass and we'll be shaken. But notice David describes where his hope is this morning. It's in the living God. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And again in verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. He's describing here how he longs after God, how he thirsts after God. God is his portion. That is his wealth. God is his cup, meaning that God is his joy. He isn't just describing his belief in God. He's describing how God is the meaning of his life, how God is his highest good, that God is his joy. It's a great reminder for us this morning that knowing God isn't just saying we believe in God and then running after to all these other things hoping that they'll fill us up or serving him and hoping that we get all this other stuff. No, knowing God is knowing him as our joy, as the meaning of our lives, as the hope of our lives. And when we know him like this, it makes us unshakable. Why? because he becomes the one love we cannot lose, the one thing that cannot be taken from us. We find in him a refuge that cannot be shaken. Now, everything that has been said so far is actually shared by a lot of the other religions out there in the public square. Uh, Buddhism, for instance, would tell you the reason we get shaken is that we run after all these other things. You're upset about your job, your relationships, well, it's all just an illusion. Don't run after them because it'll all just fade. Or perhaps Islam would say that there is one God, and you need to make that God the most important part of your life. Everything else is secondary. But only Easter, only resurrection offers us anything different which really leads us to the second thing we see here that gives us a refuge that cannot be shaken. 
we turn to the living God who raises the dead. David concludes verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David knew that he eventually was going to die. He knew that death would one day shake him, but he knew God, and God knew him. He knew that God would be totally committed to getting rid of anything that came between them, like in any love relationship, if there's something that gets in the way, if you can, you get rid of it. Well, God can. He's all-powerful. And even the worst possible thing, death, being totally shaken, David knew that that was beatable, that God would raise him up, that God was faithful. Now today, David's still in the ground. His bones or the dust of his bones are somewhere in the Middle East today. But thousands of years after David, the apostle Peter's in Jerusalem And in the book of Acts, chapter 2, there's a big crowd around him. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and Peter's getting ready to speak. And as mentioned, he chooses this psalm as his text, as his first sermon, Psalm 16. It's just after the first Easter. And what Peter says in Acts, chapter 2, is that there's more to what David has written here. He says, David didn't quite understand it all. But when he wrote these words, there was another meaning. There was a deeper meaning. He says David's words here were pointing to Jesus Christ in a prophetic or a predictive kind of way, a greater David, the descendant of David, Jesus Christ, who God raised to life, who God loves so much, whose resurrection, the Bible says, is a picture of God's total faithfulness, the God who is our refuge, whose resurrection, the Bible says, is a picture of God's victory, the the God who is unshakable, whose resurrection, the Bible says, is a guarantee that knowing God is not just an emotional, awesome hope so. It's not just wishful thinking. Jesus Christ rising from the dead is proof that God is, is there. It's proof that he is our hope, that God really is our refuge. He really is the place where we go, where we'll never be shaken. He really is our hope. His resurrection is a confirmation in a world of temporary, in a world of transience, in a world of quick change, that there's a love that we can never lose. It's so real, and it comes through so loudly that he raises his son from the dead. His resurrection proves that there's a foundation that we can stand on, that we can find permanence in this world as we find refuge in the God who raises the dead, the same God who will one day raise David from the dead, and the same God who, if we're in him this morning, if we know him this morning, will raise us to life as well.
This Easter morning, there's a dozen reasons why you should believe in God, why he raised Jesus from the dead. Perhaps you might look to the women who, at the time, uh, their testimony wasn't respected in court, yet they're the primary listed witness of the resurrection of Jesus. You wouldn't write them in if you were trying to make something up. Or perhaps it's the rapid emergence of the church. There's not really any good answers out there as to why people would die for something they knew was a lie or how it spread so quickly. But it takes faith this morning. It takes trusting in him this morning, believing in this God who can make you new. And that's exactly what resurrection means. Christianity is not like everything else out there that says one day, You'll go to paradise, or you'll become one with the universe. Christianity says that everything ends with redemption. It ends in resurrection. You don't just get to go to heaven and get a consolation prize for all you've lost in this life down here. Resurrection means one day, soon, you get to have the life that you've always wanted, to live in a world that you've always wanted where one day the lion will lay down with the lamb, where every tear will be wiped away, where there's permanence, where, as the book of Hebrew puts it, it, we finally find the city with foundations and whose architect and builder is God. Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that we could too. He defeated death, and he says this morning, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though you will die, you will live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.